Welcome to another episode of AST. Maddie B and CK here with you. And today we're going to talk about Web 3.0. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it because neither did I not that long ago. All right, Connor, take it from here. Give a layman's terms of what Web 3.0 is. Yeah. So in simple terms, Web 3.0, it's essentially decentralized crypto networks and the three kind of enduring characteristics of how different sources will describe what Web 3.0 is, is it, it's got open, trustless, and permissionless kind of characteristics. Um, we can dive into what each of those three mean later, right now, up to you. But it's essentially the evolution from centralized platforms to open, decentralized platforms with a redistribution of control and incentives that kind of brings us back to what the origin story of the internet was in the first place with Web 1.0. All right, so elaborate on that. What is Web 1.0 comparatively to 2.0 comparatively to the future, which you just outlined? Yeah, so Web 1.0, by definition is internet services that were built on open protocols that were controlled by the internet community. So it was community controlled and it was open protocols. This brought us the introduction of companies like Yahoo, Google, Amazon, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And then over time, we gradually transitioned to kind of this platform ecosystem, which is what we know as Web 2.0 which are for-profit tech companies. So you've got you know some that stuck around and some new ones that came up. So you've got Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. And they built software and services that, quite frankly, rapidly outpaced the capabilities of the open protocols that were brought to us in Web 1.0. And along with Web 2.0, you also had the introduction of smartphones, and mobile adoption, data collection, centralized services, and mass adoption. And this kind of brings us back to like network effects, if you will. So Web 1.0 sounds a lot more appealing just by its basic definition. What happened? So I don't know exactly the turning point and what it was that ticked it over, but what was essentially discovered is that if you can create a network that becomes more valuable as more users join the network you, and you can collect some data from them and in order actually to incentivize those people, you have to, or in, to get them to join the platform, you have to incentivize them, whether that's by having a really appealing product or subsidizing them by literally paying them to join or things like that. So, the technologies that were built on web 2.0 are, are were and are still really cool and really beneficial to society it brought us things like airbnb it brought us things like uber it brought us things um let's see like facebook um and you can't deny the fact that we all benefited to some extent from these services However, we're transitioning from a point now on the S-curve that instead of them subsidizing us and incentivizing us to join, they're now going from the attract stage to try and get users to the extract phase 
to try and extract as much value from the massive user population as possible. All right. And I think we're all well aware of that based on if you haven't listened to the previous podcasts, um, you know, GameStop and Robinhood were an example of bringing this centralization to light, let's say. Definitely. And, you know, Robinhood, for that example, had a lot of control over what could or couldn't be traded. Now, whether that was because of the T plus two issue that had now come to light thereafter or not, who knows? The fact is one kind of centralized entity had a lot of control and influence over a group of people. Um, and they, it was initially democratized, very attractive. Um, and, and then ultimately though, they were able to kind of shut off trading just like that snap of the finger. Yes. Um, and so what does, web 3.0 offer in the future that might mitigate some of those problems yeah so i think to really understand the value of web 3.0 you have to go back and understand one of the core components of platforms that were created in web 2.0 and that's trust and many of these platforms serve as a trusted intermediary between both a demand and supply side of a transaction. So an example, um, we'll use Uber as this example. Um, you could also apply this to Airbnb, which we've done in previous podcasts, or like Instacart is another example. And essentially, with this Uber example, you have two sides, demand and supply. You have a a passenger that is demanding that they are on the demand for a ride somewhere, let's say an airport. And you have a driver who is looking for some money there or whatever. They're just driving around. They need to pick someone up. Well, Uber is the platform or Lyft could say an example is the platform that allows these people to be connected. And in no other place or time would, would you ever either get in a stranger's car and trust them to bring you somewhere or would you stay at a stranger's house and things like uber and airbnb these platforms were trusted intermediaries that validated that this driver is credible based on their stars and their rankings and, and the that background this, checks and the research and all that absolutely and that the customer the passenger is also someone that you would want to sit in your car for a period of time and that's going to pay you. and that's going to pay you exactly they validate and they they create the they facilitate the trust between the two sides of the trade they're essentially a rent seeking intermediary and now if you pick any platform business you can find components of trust and security that these platforms provide for both sides of the trade and Web 3.0, as I mentioned previously, is open, trustless, and permissionless. And trustless is the very big component here from what we just more recently spoke about. So trustless means by definition that it is a network that itself allows participants to interact publicly or privately without a trusted third party. So there's protocols within Web 3.0 
that allow people, let's use Bitcoin as an example. Sure. If I wanted to send you money, typically I would need the bank to insure against fraud, basically, or the double spend issue. If I wanted to send you money via a check, I could write that check to you. And before you go and cash it in, I could go and spend that money elsewhere and the check would then bounce for you. And that that requires trust in the bank and the bank would have to sort out that issue potentially. Whereas now with Bitcoin, if I send you money and I say I'm sending you money, all of the nodes are validating that that money was sent. And if I tried to go spend that money elsewhere, the nodes wouldn't validate it and the transaction would be denied because all the other nodes validated that the money was given to you and it's now in your possession. The Bitcoin is yours. That is an example of no longer needing a trusted third party in the middle because the system is trustless. It does not require trust. It does not require the two people to know or trust each other in order to exchange services or value with one another. I suppose the trust would not be on you know, a physical entity or a physical human, but the trust is still on the protocol. The trust is in the protocol, the smart contract, whatever it is that is, you know, facilitating the rules of the game. And so let's talk about how that is not to be compromised. And in the case of Bitcoin has not been compromised since inception. And even though there was a double spend story recently, it was proven to be false. But how does that actually work, right? Like, how does the validation work? How does the independence work in a trustless protocol uh, for somebody that maybe doesn't understand that? When you say, can you be a little bit more specific with the question, how does it work? Uh, the, the internet was based on open protocol, right? It's arguably the reason why it has never actually been shut down. Like, the internet is still... Uh, not within government control to a certain extent. Um, the Internet itself won't go down. You know, China, for instance, may ban certain um, companies that operate on the Internet, but the Internet itself is, is, is functioning outside of anybody's authority. The same is true for the decentralized blockchain. But, like, what does that mean? In terms of power structure, maybe? Exactly. Got it. So let's bring it back to Web 2.0 quickly because sure. I, like, I think you have to understand Web 3.0 through the lens of Web 2.0 to really see where this transition is going because I could sit here and tell you about all the cool things about Web 3.0 all day, but if you don't actually think that it's going to come to fruition, what I'm saying is worthless. Yeah. So let's talk about the path forward and how we get there based on where we've been and where we are today. All right. So kind of alluded to this previously with web 2.0 companies, but there's essentially a life cycle that these companies go through. And it begins by subsidizing the early adopters with an incentive for them to adopt the platform. And based on Metcalf's law, Metcalf's law essentially says that a the value of a telecommunication network is proportional to the square of the number of connected users, meaning that as each user enters into the network, the network itself becomes more valuable as each person comes on there. So Facebook wouldn't be very valuable if nobody was on it. Facebook itself is not valuable. 
Facebook's community of users is what gives it value. Because if you're trying to look someone up, you know that there is a high prob higher probability that they're on Facebook than that they're on MySpace. Therefore, Facebook has more value. They have stronger network effects. And essentially, the goal and the name of the game early on is subsidize early adopters, get them to adopt. And it becomes this self-reinforcing cycle of that becoming more valuable, so therefore it incentivizes more people to join. They join, it becomes more valuable, so on and so forth. And so as that adoption along the S-curve increases, and the S-curve on the X-axis is time, and on the Y-axis, so the vertical axis, is number of users, a number of participants within the network. And it starts out pretty slow, and then it increases exponentially and goes up very quickly, and then it starts to taper off and it becomes flat and it gives it the shape of an S. And once it reaches kind of the top of the S curve, you start to see that the relationship goes from zero sum, excuse me, um, from positive sum to zero sum. And we go from the attract phase to the extract phase. So these centralized networks, let's use Facebook as an example, they begin to extract data from their users to try and monetize it. So instead of the focus of how do we provide the best platform and the best experience for people to want to get on this app and stay on this app, now that they're here and they're hooked and they can't leave because the network is so strong, how do we monetize them? How do we use their data to either one, target them better and more specifically with specific products, or two, how do we sell that data or give that data to other people and become a rent-seeking third party by saying, hey, we'll give you this data and or target your ads to people if you give us money or a percentage of this transaction. Okay, great, done. That's how Facebook makes money. You see it everywhere. This is how money's being made. It's how platform businesses work. And so when you look at this control not only are they monetizing users but they also don't have the incentive of keeping people happy and not we turn from the customer to the product is what what happens yeah the invisible line happens yes and and a, a perfect representation of that right now is with clubhouse and clubhouse is one of the very few companies that is able to kind of break through this uh, dominance of big tech as of recently. Now you see, and for those of you who don't know what Clubhouse is, let's give a little background. Clubhouse is essentially a drop-in audio application that allows you to drop into a room or a clubhouse and listen to people speaking, live audio. Very cool. That's all I'm gonna say on what it is exactly and the specifics of the app functionality. But it is something that is easily, can easily be replicated by Facebook, Twitter, whatever. And we're already seeing it happen just a few months after Clubhouse was created. Facebook and Instagram, they have a, a product that is or replicating that. And Twitter just came out with one as well. But what we were talking offline about this, and you can tell me if you agree still, um, Clubhouse just feels pure, right? It feels clean. It feels clean. And a lot of the reason it feels clean is because they're in that attract stage. They're trying to make the best experience possible. And whereas Twitter can go out or Facebook can go out and ban people or censor people or stifle content that's being put out there, 
Clubhouse doesn't have that luxury right now, if you want to call it a luxury, because they need to keep people happy. Yeah, where where the the invisible inflection point from attraction to extraction is a leverage point, right? And you know, many of these companies can't go unprofitable forever. And so a good thing or a bad thing, like you just stated, is just the natural evolution of some of these companies, because I would be willing to bet most of these didn't think this far into the future, right? It's not really possible. And so all of the technology, all of the data gathering, the storage, the ability to aggregate, the computing power necessary has all been evolving over the inception of the last 10 years, which is basically the fang companies um they might have started out earlier than that but uh the technology has been growing exponentially since and so you know w what kind of risk does that impose on the consumer or the ability for innovation or startups to enter into a new market right uh because i think that is one of the drawbacks that what we're seeing in web 2.0 i mean you can call up on the parlor example um technically it still exists if you can find it on a desktop um but they they took a significant hit because uh they are not allowed to participate in the areas that make it easier for users to adopt and interact and that's not like a direct competition scenario. That's like a centralization of where these applications even are allowed to operate on app stores, on cloud servers, on everything. And so Amazon might look like a consumer delivery company, but that's not where their leverage lies. No, Amazon <laughs> is, it's a platform. It's a platform between people who produce products. Because Amazon isn't making most of the products, Correct. right? They're, they're intermediary. They're a platform. They're a software platform externally facing to consumers. And then they also have internal software and like distribution platforms that are kind of connecting the sellers and the distributors of the product. They're also integrating into be being the distributor now of their product. Um, and then you also have their cloud computing business, which is hosting the vast majority of these platform businesses and they are the platform of the platforms. Yeah. And the, the, the real issue here, and I'm not picking on any company in particular, just the fact that when you concentrate that much power into so few hands and they have control over who has a voice and who doesn't have a voice, who can buy and sell things and who can't buy and sell things, who can get a ride to the airport and who can't get a ride to the airport becomes very dangerous territory once you start to start making those decisions on who can and can't do things. And that only is that only starts to really be made um, once you start entering that extract phase, you know, because you don't want to destroy your reputation while you're trying to attract users. No, there needs to be a very sensitive uh, look at your business and the adoption curve and how much leverage you actually have in order to start transitioning to the extraction phase. Otherwise, you risk killing yourself. Yes. And and so it sounds fine. Like, oh, you know, some companies are in this extract phase. 
um, well, new companies can come up and, and they can be in the attract phase and they can make all of these new products that are beneficial for people and it's all great, right? Well, let's just talk about the the inherent risk of uh, what Clubhouse faces, which is basically an uphill battle. Exactly. And so and not only, well, let's just talk about the tech uphill battle. So essentially you have these networks like Facebook, like Twitter that have so many users. And like we said, the, the network is so valuable because of the mil- or billions of users that these platforms have. And it becomes so much easier for them to just replicate Clubhouse's product. Cause I don't think Clubhouse has like a patent or any kind of restrictions on who could recreate exactly what they're doing well and just bring this up for instance right instagram stories was a copycat on snapchat but really even if they had a patent would it have been effective like i don't know the legality but it seems very very difficult to patentize these type of interfaces definitely totally um yeah like what are you gonna what's proprietary about it i don't know but uh the point is is that it makes innovation really difficult so you go from it makes it really easy for 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 Twitter or Facebook to flip a switch and have this new feature deployed on their existing application and deploy it to their network of users and gain mass adoption virtually overnight because they already have the user base, right? Like they're not really in the adoption phase that's already done. Exactly. Look at TikTok Reels, right? Or sorry, uh, Instagram, Instagram Reels, Reels which yeah. is a basically a replica of TikTok. And so it's just another example. Now, whether or not it gains adoption within the app, the functionality is there. And and so it eliminates this, like you said, you go from ha- having an attract phase to that's gone. That, that piece of it is gone. And so that is kind of relating it back to why we feel like Clubhouse feels so clean. They, it's, it's just, it's in its infancy and they're not censoring people. They're not banning people. They don't have all the algorithms running yet. I actually, I'm starting to notice that they do do a decent job and they have some, definitely have some algorithms running in the background for the rooms that they're suggesting, but it's not nearly as sophisticated and targeted as say Facebook or Twitter. Yes. Um, and, and that being said, it, it, it offers some excitement around it because it really is an infant and there really is no, I don't, I don't feel the feeling of governance. Exactly. And, and you don't feel like is what I'm going to say going to get me canceled or kicked off this platform. And actually you might not even care if you're kicked off the platform because they don't have any leverage like Facebook and everything else. Exactly. Um, I still wouldn't want to get kicked off clubhouse cause it's pretty freaking awesome. Absolutely. And, and I personally don't think I'm out here saying anything that's like going to get me canceled necessarily maybe i don't know the problem is is that like clubhouse hasn't shown that they're going to do it yet um uh but facebook and twitter have shown that they are willing to silence whether it's actively silenced by banning or shadow banning people it is a thing yes and it's an issue and it's something that like anyone with a voice is trying to work through right now on whether or not they say something because they're afraid if it's going to get them banned or it's going to get them demonetized. So demonetized, let's just talk about that for one brief second. Uh, 
you know, these platforms such as Amazon and Facebook, I'll, I'll use those two for an example. Instagram actually is still the same as Facebook. But if you notice the developments, you know, people's livelihoods are based on these platforms, right? Like you can shop very conveniently on Instagram right now. And it's of course placed conveniently. Uh, so if you run a Shopify business, for instance, now you can directly integrate with Instagram, which was a whole lot better of running ads and swiping up and all of it gets quote unquote better. But as you get more dependent on the revenue generation of these specific platforms, you, you are at risk, right? Like you hear about it all the time that third-party sellers on Amazon are being algorithmically cut out by Chinese manufacturers on the top search engines, right? Because, of course, the data shows that their product sells like hotcakes and maybe somebody can make it for cheaper and maybe the incentive structure on the back end to the provider, a.k.a. Amazon and whoever is on the manufacturing side, is just not aligned for you to make as much money as you used to. Yeah, and let's think about it. We talk about investing a lot on this podcast. Uh, one principle in investing that I think is known by a lot of people is the concept of diversification and just like not having all your eggs in one basket. The extent to which you're diversified and which you prefer is up for debate. But you never really... I don't think ever want to put all of your eggs in one basket, like literally one basket. But the second that you start allowing your social life, your work life, you know, your streams of income, your reputation to all be based off of one or very few platforms, it becomes very dangerous, especially once they've shown that they're willing to shut people off. All right. So let's hit it home one time. Why would somebody be drawn to putting all your eggs in those baskets? Because it's attractive, because there's a network, because there's a lot of, if you're an influencer, right, and you have uh, 500,000 followers on Instagram, and you have 1,000 followers on Twitter, right, you're going to easily want to be on Instagram. And if they give you an opportunity to sell something on Instagram, and you're right now working a $30,000 a year job, but instead you can get paid $100,000 to go promote products to your 500,000 Instagram followers, so depending on uh, some of the other factors that from the surface level, it sounds like a pretty easy decision to make. You know, you 3X your income by just promoting something on, on Instagram, okay? that It's the incentives. You have the, the access to the network and all of the people out there who are willing to buy it. Therefore, it makes it more attractive to participate on that um, because it's easier, right? And chances are getting 500,000 followers on that particular platform took a long time of energy, resources, and who wants to recreate that, right? Yes, and, 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 and the thing is, is that nowadays it's been proven that if you have an opinion that isn't the opinion you're supposed to have, you can go bye-bye just like that. Yeah, it's an unfortunate reality. And really, uh, how that relates, so that's Web 2.0, right? The power. And, and the mobile device, in your opinion, because mine is the mobile device, really was the catalyst for Web 2.0 to take off. Because, and maybe we can jump into this right now or in a minute, but it's because the data available to extract from the mobile device. Yes, and let's let's get back to let's go right after go to that right after this. All right. So I just want to hit home the connection between Web 2.0 and 3.0. So as I mentioned previously, there's three characteristics of Web 3.0. 
trustless, permissionless, and open. So permissionless, meaning that anyone, both users and suppliers, can participate without authorization from a governing body. You don't need anyone to tell you that you can or can't participate and what you can and can do while you're participating. You are able to do it without permission, hence it's permissionless. That is a distinguishing feature of Web 3.0 from Web 2.0. And now we kind of get into the, the open component of it. Um, and so going back to Web 2.0, you mentioned that Web 2.0 was essentially built off of mobile phones. And you have phones in people's hands constantly generating data, whether that's location, um, text messages, phone calls, search engine, application use, camera, microphone, so on and so forth. And nobody really knows. I mean, okay, let's step back. Nobody reads the terms and, and conditions. conditions. Can we just agree on that before? Because there's going to be that asshole. I'll just that's say like, I don't. I don't. And there's going to be that person that's like, oh, well, you know, you, you know. And even if you could, most times it's not put in simple enough English to really understand. And if you're going to tell me that you're going to do that every time the terms and condition changes, which could potentially be with every single upgrade to that app, which applications upgrade pretty frequently, nobody's doing that. Nobody has the time for it. They just don't. Well, the bottom line is all these companies are so big and valuable into creating value for the everyday person's life that you're arguably forced to participate regardless. Yes. And and if you don't, they're, they're like, yeah, here, you have a choice, but you the don't. The choice sucks. You d- the choice is, <laughs> yes, there's really no choice when you look at it from a utility standpoint. Yes, there's always a choice, but that doesn't mean there's sac- not sacrificing the other end. And there's still risk associated with it. Like, you may not get canceled, but there's a risk that you get canceled and you get shut off the platform. But, like, you'd rather take that risk and just, like, accept the terms of service. Um, but the problem is, and getting back to this open kind of characteristic of Web 3.0, with Web 2.0, we don't know how they're using that data. We don't know what insights they're generating you know we don't know what they can see we don't know what conclusions they can draw and it not only becomes somewhat of an infringement on our privacy but also you can start to question the control that these platforms have on really generating broader societal tension through these kind of algorithmically created echo chambers that they put us into because at the end of the day the name of the game is data. The name of the game is getting the most data and the best data so you can drive insights. How do you do that, though? You do that by keeping people glued to their phone. Well, how do you glue people to their phone? You give them access to the most relevant content to them. Well, studies show, and I don't have the exact source linked to me right now, but studies show that if you take like posts and label them by sentiment, um, so let's say happy, sad, mad, and neutral, just some emotions out there, studies show that the, th- the posts that make people sad and angry are shared at significantly higher rates than the posts that make people happy or neutral. And that makes a lot of sense based on human behavior and emotional uh, intelligence. Absolutely. It 100% makes sense intuitively. But the fact of the matter is, is that 
when you scale that behavior and you give them access, give people access to abundance and abundance of information and you algorithmically control what's given to them. And the goal is the incentive is in place to keep them glued to their phone. You're going to give them a bunch of negative news, a bunch of things that make them mad or sad. Why do you think mental health um, issues have skyrocketed? Why do you think societal tensions seem higher than they've ever been? It's because it's all magnified, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, absolutely. There, there would be, you know, a slight bit of a devil's advocate that we have some sort of obligation to be able to discern this information. But I think that argument is, while logically makes sense, not very practical. No. And I, there may be some people who can discern it and most people might be able to when they take a step back and if they're given the information, but I think that. So can I just outline like a a habit that I've noticed that I dislike, but I can't control please. So I am innately an emotional character. I think most people are. Some people have a far more mathematical or engineer mindset where they first analyze, then react Well, I certainly grew up most of my adult life in the opposite fashion, where I would feel, then react, instead of think, then react, right? And I'm not mad about that, but I do it all the time. I've just became aware of that. So although sometimes I might share something that emotionally strikes me, I might rethink like, hey, is that as valuable as I thought it was? And after thinking about it, the answer is actually no, most of the time. But I'm still vulnerable to that type of incentivization. Yeah. And, and, and I just think that that's taken me a long time of self-reflection to actually even admit. And s- I wasn't actually introduced to these platforms uh, in their subtlety and, and uh, evolution at as young of an age as some people were. So to say that somebody even a decade younger than me growing up in the next phase of adoption when you start younger has these capabilities is, you did, it's almost laughable. Yeah, and th- this is part of the reason why I actually don't post much on social media at all. I have the you know occasional tweet a couple times a week maybe. But I don't really sit out here and share my opinion on like specific news articles. I try to think in broader themes because believe me, I'm reading it (laughs) and I'm paying attention to it. But if I start sharing things emotionally, I don't have the time to react because I'm very similar to you. I'm I'm emotional and I have those emotional reactions when I read something. But like I've just had to like keep my finger off the trigger and trigger. I mean, phone, you know, the, the tweet button because you don't you don't know what information is being withheld or hasn't come out yet that might change your view on the story. So it's just, it's important to take a step back, contextualize things, remove emotion from the situation. If you really want to make like solid rational decisions. So I think it's super important that people are doing what you're doing and realizing that because a lot of people, it's just react. There's no reflection. There's no analysis. It's just react. And that react is what magnifies 
the social tensions. And we may be, quite frankly, I think we live in a much better world today than we lived in 60 years ago. Oh, I, I, I would agree with you 100%. I will say that with very high confidence. Now, you can choose what indicators you want to determine, you know, say we're living better or worse. But I think we're living better. And I think most people and most statistics would align with that. However, we now have access to constant negativity, if that's what you want, in social media. Because that is what glues us to the phone, and that is what makes us a more valuable product to these companies. And so, how do we fix that? How do we fix the incentive structures, right? It's a fabulous question. And I think that's how you kind of make the transition to the open characteristic of Web 3.0, which is that they're built from open source software built by an open and accessible community of developers and executed in full view of the world. So incentives for those developers to create high quality utility generating and utility, I mean beneficial products and updates to the network for the benefit of all users. And they're doing so in full view of the entire community, which means that they're not operating in a little black box deciding what algorithm they're going to apply to this, you know, A cluster or B cluster to m- potentially make ad targeting more valuable, right? They're not, yeah. they're not doing that. And if they are, it's going to be recognized by all of the other community members. And most times you need adoption and acceptance of the updates to the entire network because it's open and its decisions are made based on the community standards, which now if they don't agree that that's a good thing, they will not adopt it. Yeah. The decision making process is, is entirely different than centralization. Exactly. Uh, centralization does not require a majority of the community no. in our times currently. It requires a group of people at a leadership team meeting in some boardroom in the middle of San Francisco. Or virtually. Who knows? Right. Right? Yeah. So I think we've made the case for why Web 3.0 is beneficial based on the flaws of today. But we definitely can't overlook the fact that like we're all better off because of each of these stages. But it's just it's really important to like take a step back and realize that, hey, it sucks right now what we're going through. But there is something else on the horizon And I think this new horizon that hasn't fully been realized yet, and a lot of people see it as a price chart right now with Bitcoin and Ethereum, and they're just paying attention to the price. But once you set that aside and you see the potential value of everything that's going to be, imagine the internet before it was the internet and before there were domains, right? Before there were actual websites to travel to. Bitcoin and Ethereum is that base layer of the internet. And now we are going to have countless applications and utilities built on top of those networks. It's pretty fascinating. It's pretty exciting. And you are right. I think many people, I I certainly agree that life is better now than than it was 50 years ago. And there may be, some mental characteristics that are harder to deal with now but when you take into consideration you know really before the industrial era let's say 
life expectancy, you know, the physical labor jobs that resulted in disability, like the, the actual problems that we are discussing today are certainly not as life-threatening or as difficult as in the past, uh, at least in my opinion. Now, mentally, I'm not so sure that our world is more simple. I think it's more complicated. So you could definitely make the argument that the, the, the difficulty of keeping up on the subjects that we're literally talking about right now causes stress and anxiety for many people. Yeah, and you could also argue that, and this is not meant to be condescending at all, but there, there are probably people in this country that we could put this episode in front of and they would not understand. It would be like a different language. It really would. Yes. And I mean that not to be rude. I mean that to be like, hey, there is a huge part of the population that is sheltered from what's happening right next door. Yes. Um, yes. And ignorance is bliss sometimes. Yes. And, and so you have to ask yourself, do we allow suffering to happen in order to get to the, the other side? Do we have some type of cushion that allows kind of the suffering to be not so painful while we undergo this transition? Or, you know, what are the options? Because it's not going to be all, you know, dandelions and daffodils. It's not. And so it'll be interesting to see how, when, and if we're able to make this transition. But I think if we do, I think a lot of the benefits that we realized from the inception of the internet and web 1.0 and 2.0 are going to seem just minute compared to the possibilities of the benefits we'll receive from web 3.0. Because I think if I had to make a prediction that web 3.0, as we decentralize and we start distributing power across the network to individuals, redistributing it back to individuals, people will now have more control over their own lives. Becoming an entrepreneur will be the norm not the anomaly. You will be able to work for yourself and get paid based off of smart contracts and based off of, you know, just specific trustless processes of, of, of services that you can provide. And you might go from working an average of 40 hours a week with your, you know, quote unquote job to working, you know, five hours a week across eight different things, you know, if we're using 40 hours as the benchmark. And there's, there's, just, there's going to be endless possibilities for generating income, for spending your time, and how you can kind of cross fun and life with work and income and, 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 and just overall benefit from society that, that removes the kind of pain, suffering, manual labor that, you know, we kind of, helped remove from with the, the, the evolution of the internet, but now like really getting rid of it. Is that scary though? hundred percent. It's scary to, to, to think about what it would be like for the people whose jobs are going to be eliminated. Right. Yeah. But I do think that 
within these kind of when there's when there's pain there's opportunity you know i um i'm not sure exactly how we get people to to have that shift in mindset for when that does come but if we can start to prepare people and we can start to educate people those are the two those are going to be the two two of the biggest keys to overall success and um the rate of benefit realization is how prepared are people and how educated are people? Yeah. And that's, that's going to be an interesting evolution in itself. But the interesting part of it is, is that there's some sort of natural evolution of this, right? That web 1.0 was open protocol. Web 2.0 became centralized protocol, but it still was out of the necessity of benefit. Because Web 1.0 was just simply not keeping up from a development standpoint. The resources weren't in place in the independent side. And that natural evolution made these Apple, Amazon, all those things tremendously more valuable for the everyday person until the level of extraction has gotten to the point where some people are like, hey, I'm not a fan of that. And instead of complaining about it, I'm actually going to do something about it. And that's when you've got the last decade of talented people, time and money allocating into these decentralized protocols. And now finally, we're at some type of an inflection point when the impossible might be interpreted as inevitable. I mean, that's kind of how I look at it. Now, I think there's going to be a long tail integration of both for some time, but the interesting part about freedom and a free economy and open source is that solutions tend to progress in the right direction from what I can see. The, the bummer about it is there's just still pain that has to happen to incentivize that. Yeah, and, and who knows, like, we're just two dudes talking about the world and what we think is going to happen and what is happening. And how we feel about it. And yeah. how we feel about it. And we might be missing something that will alleviate that pain. And, you know, with that pain being what we think is inevitable, there may be someone or something or, you know, part of the protocol or the network that alleviates that pain that th there may a market may come about that minimizes that pain because I think we fail to realize now this is getting real deep. We fail to realize that we operate as a species and as a unit and we evolve as a species and as a unit and we move as a species and as a unit. And if we are faced with potential pain, it is almost natural, and even both on an individual and at a collective level, to want to avoid that pain. Unless you've trained your mind to run towards pain. Correct. I like the exception. And, and, 
the majority of people have not trained their mind to run towards pain. Therefore, I would like to say that as a collective, we operate with the instinct to avoid pain. Correct. And I think we've known where we're heading for a while. And we've been talking about, you know, like look at like the Jetsons, for an example, right? Think about how many people once in, in or even just since we la- launched the first rocket into space and we landed on the moon. Think about how many people, if you said, where do you think the world would be in 2020? They would have said flying cars, living in space, you know, teleporting, time, like all of these crazy, amazing technologies. We have a pretty kick-ass technologies for sure. But I think that the reason we haven't fully realized our potential and fully gotten to that place where people would have predicted we would be is because in order to get there, you have to go into pain and you have to you have to confront that pain and whether that means poverty job loss whatever and 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 ultimately i think that ends in redistribution of wealth and who knows i just thought about this as i was talking we might see bitcoin or ethereum which is literally to my knowledge one of the only investment or two investments that has allowed the little guy to front run all of these massive institutions and people who already have a lot of money, we were able to front run them all. They were one of the two predominant. I would agree with that. And so this is a potential for a great redistribution of wealth. And, and I think wealth, if we're both talking on the same page, wealth is really the source of, or income or money value is where we're drawing that source of pain from. Right. Is that what we're referring to when we mean pain and to some extent? Yeah, absolutely. So if we have that wealth redistributed, that might naturally alleviate some of that pain. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there are there are opportunities that still exist in different parts. Right. Many people uh, did that with GameStop. Right. Many people were successful at doing that with that. But the interesting part about bitcoin and ethereum is there was almost 10 years for the little guy to do it that's exactly what i mean and like 10 years and who and it's only going to become more scarce as these other people start buying it so who knows i i some people are some of the very early early adopters are going to have more money than they will ever need correct i think a lot of that will i'd predict be donated to open source developers who are building on the network it could be donated to charity i don't know exactly where it's going to go i'm not going to sit here and predict something because i have no control over it but i would guess that it's going to be so the the richest person in the world at some point will be a bitcoiner and we may never know who that is we they may never top elon musk or jeff bezos because it's private yeah. But if they did come out and publicly say their Bitcoin position, I would guarantee you that it, one of the richest people will be a Bitcoiner. Or many of the richest people will be Bitcoiners. Or Ethereans. Yes. And, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg, though, right? Like, there's actually been a lot of opportunity in the crypto network, if you will. You can call it cryptocurrencies, but I prefer to crypt- call it crypto network. There are constantly 
new protocols being developed and those protocols have risks of failing. But if you understand it from a fundamental perspective, uh, they're trying to make the ecosystem better. When you say other protocols, do you mean like altcoins? Or no, well, technically, yes. Uh, some of those are used in the decentralized finance space. Got it. Okay. Got it. So Uniswap, for instance, is built on top of Ethereum. Yep. Right. Yes. And a lot of them they're using like the protocol. They're they're deriving the base protocol from like Bitcoin or Ethereum. So exactly. Yeah. But if you pay attention to who might be having a probability of success on executing that, there is still more opportunities because we're still in the early stage. And I just don't know how many people are going to participate in that activity. And so I don't know how much the wealth will actually be redistributed. Because even if you look at Bitcoin, which is pretty mainstream, uh, man, I got to imagine the percentage is just so low of the regular individual really understanding the pristine collateral value of that asset and just to hang on to that bad boy. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting. The majority of people definitely do not own Bitcoin or Ethereum or any cryptocurrency right now. No, it's not even like close, dude. It's something in like the single digit it's percentile. Like probably 10%, I think, is where we're at of adoption. Oh, we could look it up, but it doesn't matter. It's not very many. No. Um, so going backwards a little bit on Web 3.0, where does the Internet of Things, where does artificial intelligence fit into this conversation? Because I just think like it's a necessity to mention. Yes, definitely. So there were a couple. I, I'd read an article, and I, this article was written by uh, Fabric Ventures, and I'll, we can link it in the description. But they outline essentially three layers of technological innovation that are kind of the cornerstones of Web 3.0, that being edge computing, decentralized data networks, and artificial intelligence. So edge computing essentially refers to taking data from a centralized storage to now being distributed across smartphones, home appliances, vehicles, smartwatches, computers, tablets, you name it. Anything that is connected to the internet, which is collecting data. And just a quick statistic on that that was taken a couple years ago, at the rate which we're consuming and creating data, we will have created 160 times the amount of data that we created in 2010 by 2025. And 2010 was looking backwards as an entirety, right? Yes, yes. So in 10 years, will 160x the total history of data? Yes. Got it. Um, as, as far as my understanding, might have to double check that, but I think that's correct. Yes. Like the, the interpretation of how the data was put. Um, and then you have decentralized data networks, which essentially makes it possible for data generators, so you and me or anybody else part of the network who has machines devices connected it allows them to sell and barter their data without losing the ownership or control so they can actually reap the benefit of exchanging their data for rewards without needing facebook or twitter to 
sell that data to some advertiser for them, which is pretty awesome because it creates this whole new data economy, right? Data is very valuable. Yeah, I mean, it creates it new in the re- in the perspective of it being controlled by the individual whose data it is. Exactly. And it, depending on how much data you have and the quality of the data you have, you can get to the third component, which is artificial intelligence and machine learning. And whoever has the best data and the most data will get AI. And AI is the key. Because once you get AI, it's game over. You win. Done. All right. So let's talk about something that might be confusing. Um, You said get AI equals the winner, which basically insinuates that AI is not gotten yet. Not on the level that maybe uh, we as consumers think it is. So, you know, one of the things, I don't care who you are unless you live in a dark cave. You've got to have conversations with your friends around the subject of I was on my phone I was talking about something out loud and randomly an ad popped up for me and what a coincidence that might be right like functionally what is that and why is it not AI yeah I wouldn't say that that's AI just because like if you take a introductory to like machine learning course in school or like data, an introductory to data science course in school, you can figure out the algorithms that they're using to, to do this. And then you just connect the dots with, okay, they have in the terms and conditions that says they can use our microphone. They have natural language processing systems that allows them to interpret our voice, convert it to text, derive meaning from it. Okay, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about new water bottles, something we're going to now dish them ads for new water bottles. Okay. Exactly. And then you combine that with all of the other data points like location, who they're with, uh, what other applications they're using, even Amazon application, for instance, what they buy. And if you've gravitated towards buying most of your stuff on there now, instead of the actual physical stores, now it's centralized in one place. Now there's even more data at the one centralized place, now it can go to be basically synthesized for value. Exactly. And then we can say, okay, we targeted these ads, and now we're going to figure out who actually bought the things that we were advertising for. How long did it take for them to buy it? Okay, now why did these work and why did this not work? Now we're going to learn from it. It's definitely a form of machine learning in the sense that like, it's trying to learn what works and what doesn't work, which is why over the last five years, the ads have definitely gotten a heck of a lot better, at least in my opinion, um, in the precision. But at the end of the day, like artificial general intelligence, which is an AI that can think on its own and be conscious on its own, which who knows if we will ever get there. I think we will. I'm not sure when. But in order to get there you'd need the best data and the most data and probably switch that around. You need the most data and then you need the best data. Yes. Um, And, and once you have that, you're in control. Which generates leverage, which generates leverage. And if you think about this, this is probably part of the reason why we're, at the state we're at with big tech and they haven't been fully regulated yet because our government cannot afford 
to lose the race on AI because like we mentioned, we're not just talking about being a winner from a company standpoint. We're talking about being a winner from a national standpoint, country versus country. Whatever country and ideology that comes along with that country wins the AI arms race, they win the game. So whatever the belief system is of that entire country, get ready because if they win AI, it's coming. And whether you like it or not. So who are the two major players? Uh, I would imagine the U.S. is one of them based on your statement of why these companies have not been regulated for their monopolistic characteristics because uh, our government is, is, is may or may not be participating in the AI, but our public sector certainly is. Yes, and then the second is China. All right, so what are the differences in structure that may or may not give advantages or disadvantages to that race, right? Because right now we have, call it the FANG companies, participating in massive resource allocation to AI. But then you have a country that, uh, for the most part, very little is known about, other than they have an accepted form of centralization, right? Like, they're not really, at least from my perspective, they're not really having uh, outspoken arguments on the subjects of centralization with their fang companies over there, right? No, actually. And if you do have that conversation, which look up what happened to Jack Ma recently when he tried to say that banks were outdated, essentially, and had too much control, he had his IPO blocked. He is now having his companies, uh, Alibaba and Ant Group, looked at for antitrust violations in China. Not only is it discouraged, it's pretty much not possible to have those conversations without your entire life being taken out from under you. And and that's because the Chinese Communist Party essentially is in business with you, right? Like they are, they are a partner. If you're doing business in China or your business is uh, headquartered in China, you are in business with the Chinese Communist Party, 100%. And they, if you don't want to give them access to data that they are demanding access to, too bad, you're done. Why do you think that China doesn't have Facebook or Google or Twitter or Instagram in their country? It's because they just created their own so that they can have access to all of the data. Because why would these American companies give up their proprietary data to a country that's demanding it from them? It doesn't make sense. There's definitely more complexities associated with it, but China would rather have direct access to their the users and direct access to the data unconditionally without even having to fight for it because they'll just have it if they copy Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Well, and their population size alone allows them to have an advantage in gathering the quantity of data first, right? Like quantity, then quality. For sure. And so I think you mentioned the analogy offline that that we're in a modern-day Cold War, for instance. Um, and, you know, we can talk about pain again. And I think that China has a lot more acceptance of pain to progress in their nation state 
than the U.S. has. So we seem to burn a lot of resources a lot around this subject where China doesn't seem to burn any resources because of their centralization. And so what I actually am, don't have an answer on, but the question that I inevitably ask is like, what, what does open source look like when you talk about China, right? Because it doesn't, it doesn't because the United States is definitely integrating with it in, in various fashions. They're even creating legislation on it. And so what does that look like from a competitive standpoint? China versus us, if that is the competitive, I, I mean, this, if you think about it, this is, and I wouldn't say that the United States is the, you know, model nation of decentralization and open source. I just want to preface what I'm about to say with that because I do not think we're perfect. And I think there's a lot more decentralization, decentralization that needs to take place to really be successful. But this is what it comes down to. This is what it's always come down to. When you think about capitalism versus communism or socialism, it is about do you want freedom or do you want to be controlled in my opinion do you want open source which is freedom and allows people to operate accordingly or do you want to be told how to operate do you want to be told what's right told what's wrong told what you can can't think can and can't say that is the power that you give a government when control is centralized like it is with the Chinese Communist Party. Yes. And I would say that we have some risks of trending to their uh, model. Absolutely. Because both could potentially be successful in achieving their goal. And right now, I would like I pretty much think the goal is AI. It is has been for a while and both are potential paths to the same solution and then it's in the question of the united states you know we were kind of originated based on this principle of freedom right is there a way in which we centralize ourselves to get there and then try and revert back to decentralization is that possible i don't i don't know but also can we even get there in the first place if we tried to do that because we've convinced people and we've had this narrative that we're this great free prosperous state that we're now seeing power become centralized in so few clusters that it's starting to be come we're starting to feel like a lie yeah i would certainly agree with that as unfortunate as that sounds um, but I would say the participation, the conversation and the trajectory of evading that is starting to become topic of a conversation, which is the most important first step. Absolutely. I would totally concur with that. So if you were to talk to somebody that heard all of this for the first time 
Like, what do you say to that guy or gal on what to pay attention to going forward? Yes. So there's a couple of things. One, I would say if you have already listened to this podcast, I encourage you to think about instances that you've seen centralization and instances that you've seen decentralization and ask yourself what's worked well, what hasn't worked well, why haven't they worked well? How can one capitalize on the pitfalls of the other? And just kind of run through that quick analysis for yourself, make up your own mind, do some additional research if you have to. But then uh, beyond that, what I really think, where I think I see things trending and where I think just a couple of thoughts that I'd put down where people might want to start seeing how they would fit into this type of world is it would be uh, first privacy as a service or just privacy in general. Like what is it? What does a world look like when privacy becomes the luxury? You know, we first for the last 20 so years, we've, we've been just giving up privacy uh, because of the benefit that we receive when we trade it off. Now ask yourself, well, what do I want to be private? What, what would a world look like if, if the things that people are demanding be private actually stay private? What types of things are those? It's up for you to decide. And then the second thing is creator economy. You know, what do you think, what are you good at? What can you create? If you were free from your job, and you were not working for anyone or answering to anyone, what does the creator economy, the individual kind of data economy look like for you? What are you good at? What can you sell? What can you, how can you add value? You don't have to be making like a, a tangible good. It can just be something that you like talking about. It can just be a podcast. It can, it could be reading books. I don't know. Like it could be anything really find that explore that idea for yourself because there's a possibility that at some point in maybe the near or you know mid to not too distant future you will have the chance to to do that full time and that's what decentralization would allow you to do the third thing in my opinion is freedom of speech not because i think freedom of speech is the best i i personally do i'm i'm a very strong proponent of freedom of speech and just freedom of thought and freedom in general. And I really think that it's an important concept to, to, to wrestle with yourself because everyone has an opinion on it and really ask yourself, like, can you have freedom? Can you, can you balance, have this balancing act that we're trying to perform right now in society and can it succeed? And what does it look like if you continue to extrapolate what's going on um, a few years from now? And then the last thing is is community because democratization that would be enabled through Web 3.0, yes, it comes down to the individual and the creator economy like I mentioned, but a lot of it comes down to the community and new communities, sub-communities that can be created that you can take part in. Try and figure out what community do you want to fit into. Um, these are very high level, big picture things, but I've always found that like asking the big questions and exploring the big questions for myself 
I've learned a lot about myself and about how I view the world. And it's helped me shape my worldview and ask more fine tuned kind of granular questions. Yeah, that was a pretty good high level answer. And, uh, I think that that goes to kind of the point of this conversation, which is to start thinking about these things, right? Because like I said, at the very, very beginning of the episode, I didn't actually, uh, know what web 3.0 was specifically more than let's say 30 days ago um do i know that many of these things are happening yeah but it certainly helps to develop like a concise understanding of why they're happening um and it's because of the pitfalls that centralization over the course of time have made pretty obvious to everybody in my opinion is just like you might not be able to connect the dots to centralization it might just be you're angry at facebook or something like that right and while that emotion is still valid it doesn't assist you with any real value to ask more pertinent questions and eventually make some decisions to control the outcome of your life in my opinion 100 percent. it's uh yeah couldn't agree more and i think the whole point of this podcast well there's a couple of reasons but we're not experts you know we're not no and this 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 probably has very few experts on it <laughs> yeah and in 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 the point of this podcast in my opinion is one to just wrestle with our own ideas and our own thoughts, push back with each other, learn for you and I. But then also if we can kind of serve as like a fire starter, like just yes. the kindling for people to take their own ideas and their own opinions and run with it. So I think this is a great conversation today that kind of helped get that ball rolling and helped me learn a little bit more about how you're thinking about Web 3.0, helped me to figure out how I'm thinking about it. And it's uh, it was a good one. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm looking forward to the future, but that doesn't mean that I don't have fear around the future, right? I think it, it change is inevitably scary. And, you know, you could look at most people's types of earnings right now for their, their livelihood. And, like, if you get into the rabbit hole, you, I ask myself, you know, will this service be eliminated uh, in the same fashion. And I think if you want to dodge that question, um, that provides temporary peace of mind. But, you know, it doesn't really allow you to adapt into the future because, you know, the alternative is to then gravitate towards centralization to be taken care of. And I just think that that does not look like the future that I want at all. Because I have no control over myself or my family's life. Your own agency. My Yeah, my own agency, my own being. And I, I think that what it, that's what it comes down to. It's freedom to make your own decisions, whether that means those that allow you to prosper or those that cause you to fail. But it's freedom that allows you to go through this beautiful learning process. Absolutely. So optimistic outlook. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.